Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei, Seiko, Ibuju, Quay, Ninda Luizi, Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. But it's also about asserting, living, and defending our individual and collective sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And today we're going to talk about an issue that impacts individual sovereignty in a very profound way and i get to speak to my near and dear friend kick-ass warrior and colleague Alyssa lombard she's been a practicing lawyer for about 10 years and is currently a partner with semagonist worm and lombard a law firm she's also currently working on a class action lawsuit in relation to the issue of and coerced sterilization of Indigenous women in Canada. Now, she can't talk about the details of the legal proceedings because they're underway, but she has joined us to help educate us about this issue of forced and coerced sterilization. Welcome to the show, Alyssa. Thanks for having me, Pam. I'm so excited that you could come here. I know you're probably the world's most busiest woman, and this court case is probably just getting bigger and bigger. But I appreciate it. And I know all of my listeners have been asking to hear about this issue for months and months. So I'm so glad I finally pinned you down. Um, I'm wondering if you would like to introduce yourself and your um, background and what community you're from and in the way that you like to do that. Thanks, Pam. Um, I was raised in Mi'kma'ki in southwest Nova Scotia, what I affectionately call the Kespequit. Uh, my relations are in Siganiktuk or in Elsibuktuk First Nations on my father's side. Uh, and I've been living in Ottawa since I was 18 years old. Um, and that about sums it up. <laughs> well, well, so uh, Mi'kmaq sister, that's like the best that you can be from the all-powerful Mi'kmaq nation. Um, so how did you become a lawyer? I mean, I'm a lawyer too, but there's all different paths and all different reasons for becoming a lawyer. What What was your reason and what was your path? Um, I, I started with a degree in criminology. Uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer, I think from about grade two. Um, and I think that now looking back, a lot of that had to do with observing social injustices and wanting to contribute to, to, to just, to, to rectifying some of those things. And I think, I think the first time I said I wanted to be a lawyer was in grade two. And when my grandmother asked me why I said, cause they get to argue. So that gives you a little <laughs> bit of insight into my personality, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, and then when I, I moved to Ottawa, I did my undergraduate degree in criminology. Uh, I did a few classes in Aboriginal peoples and justice and I guess the early two thousands and then I really started to understand the world around me and my place within it and felt that burning desire to to, uh, to help to create a better space. Uh, and so then I went off to, uh, to law school. I did my civil law degree and then my common law degree, and I'm now doing a master's in health law and policy. Um, and so what that burning desire really came from, A, wanting to understand these tools that we have to organize ourselves around for whatever reason, and B, wanting to even them out or utilize them in such a way that our people can live better and um, be more proud within the whole. Wow. So did you did you find that like throughout that, because I think that one of the best reasons to become a lawyer is to combat injustice, is to actually try to put some social justice back into the justice system. But sometimes um, and, and you probably know from your you know colleagues and friends who have become lawyers that sometimes being an indigenous woman or an indigenous person in general in law school and the legal system can be somewhat of an impediment. It can be a challenge, um, you know, both just in terms of where we come from, but also in terms of, you know, discrimination or racism. And I'm wondering, did you face any of those challenges when you were starting your way to becoming a lawyer? Oh, certainly. I think, I think we have different perspectives. Uh, I do have to say that there's, I have, uh, I have some privilege and that I'm quite fair skinned and I have light eyes. And so often people would not necessarily assume that 
I was indigenous, but the perspective that I would put forward clearly sometimes, particularly in class and constitutional law class would, you know, get rebuffed a little bit or, or be challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had some different perspectives in Aboriginal law class, for example. First, I thought the class would be something entirely different than what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when I came to understand in the you know mid-2000s that what the class in fact was, was law as it applies to Aboriginal people, I thought, oh, that's not what I thought I signed up for. Uh, thankfully, now those kinds of classes have changed. I mean, there certainly were some inappropriate terms used, uh, some some very dismissive comments in class and and in the profession um, when it comes to raising particular concerns. I would say that further um, that further dehumanization, though the mm-hmm. authors of those comments are not always aware of that, um, I would say that is the impact. Well, I'm I'm glad that you stuck with it, all those challenges, because now you're a partner at your own law firm and you're working on your master's in health law and policy. Presumably, that's going to be somewhat related to the issue that we're talking about today. Um, and I'm wondering if you can explain to people and assume that, you know, we have a very, like a varied audience. Some are from Canada, some are from outside of Canada. We have younger people, we have um, older people. They might not know all of the details or the basics of, of what it is we're talking about today. So I'm wondering if you can explain what is this idea or issue of forced and coerced sterilization? Well, forced and coerced sterilization, I would say, is um, the other side of the coin of bodily autonomy. And so the law provides quite unequivocally that treatment must be voluntary at the hands of the health system. And so that necessarily involves a series of steps that healthcare providers must go through before they subject any particular patient to any treatment, um, including if that treatment may be life-saving. The one guiding feature of treatment, and I would say this is further um, amplified when we're talking about elective treatments such as sterilization uh, is that a person must have capacity. So you have to be in your right mind to make a decision. You're not in a stressful situation. Uh, you're able to listen, you're able to hear, you're able to understand, and you're able to think. Secondly, you have to um, be in a position Uh, to receive and understand the disclosure of risks, benefits, and other options from the physician or healthcare provider. You have the right to ask questions. You have the right to say no, even if it is presented as a life-saving treatment. This is not a decision that all people would make, and this is certainly not medical advice. But my point here is that bodily autonomy um, has no qualification. And so the person, the patient, has the right to obtain all information with respect to the proposed treatment. You also need to be in the appropriate environment and have some time to consider the information that's been imparted. And you have the right um, to take as much time as you need to think about it. Um, And fourth, uh, there must be no coercion. So you can't be encouraged one way or the other. Things cannot be proposed to be withheld from you in exchange for your agreement to a particular treatment. Um, Although there may be medical risks, which the doctor certainly has an obligation to tell you about, it is in the patient's hands to determine um, whether or not they want to take those risks. Now, these are not things that everybody would want to do, but it certainly is a person's choice to do so. Um, And so there are particular situations where other people can make decisions on people's behalf. Um, That's, for example, if there's a power of attorney with respect to personal um, medical treatment or personal care, um, where a person is unconscious and and there's no kin or replacement decision maker available or present, or something is a situation of, in a situation of urgency and and it's life-saving. Now, tubal ligation and sterilization does not meet the test of any of these things that I discussed right now. The way that what we have been seeing or what has been reported is that women who are in the throes of labor present at the hospital 
and now Pam as a mom, mm-hmm. you will understand um, what labor and delivery <laughs> feels like and looks like. Um, it is not a circumstance in which, for myself, in any event, uh, I could think of anything other than the task at hand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was certainly not at a time where I wanted to have a discussion about whether I wanted to do it again down the road. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a bubble there. There's a bubble where a person's giving life. Now, let's be frank, without that, none of us would be here. We all came mm-hmm. into this uh, into this existence in the exact same way. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and without this process, none of us would be here. It is the essence of life and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and no... In, in no in no colloquial terms, in very very real terms. Um, so that being said, what we've been seeing are, or what has been reported to us, are women who are presenting for either uh, for 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 normal deliveries, or I don't want to say normal deliveries, mm-hmm. but rather um, vaginal deliveries, uh, or have scheduled C sections, and they are approached after being admitted um, in various states of labor and delivery. Um, about having their tubes tied. And um, we say that that's not appropriate, it's not mm-hmm. necessary, and that it's a violation of human rights. Right. And from what I understand, like, I mean, I've been following this in the media, and I've heard from, you know, some individuals, they're saying that that's, that's not the only situation in which that happens, that it, it can be um, them being coerced in other ways. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of those other ways, like those that are connected to the child welfare system, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly have heard about CFS or Child Family Services involvement um, in these types of situations, um, either uh files are flagged, there are birth alerts, or um, social workers are present at appointments with doctors or at the hospital itself. Um, We've even, um, it's even been reported that um, mothers were not allowed to hold their babies until such time as they agreed and that social workers uh, would hold the baby, the newborn baby, an inch closer to the door as another health professional asked the woman whether she wanted to undergo a tubal ligation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I would say uh, it has been reported to us, yes, that CFS or Child and Family Services has been weaponized um, to extract a course consent from Indigenous mothers for tubal ligations. And, and for people who are not familiar with the law, I mean, generally, if you're under a situation of extreme duress, doesn't that vitiate or nullify any possible consent that you would give? I would say yes, unequivocally. Uh, And the reason I say this is because there is no shortage of case law talking about or addressing um, circumstances of heightened stress or distress uh, wherein consent was vitiated. I can think of no circumstance more distressful than passing a human through your body. Mm -hmm. And um, to those who have not experienced that, I can say that I experienced it seven and a half months ago. And so my Mm -hmm. recollection is extremely clear. And I can tell you and, um, and, and listeners, um, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, The impact that it has on your ability to, to think about anything other than what you have to do at the very moment is extreme. Now, every woman's experience will be different, but what is certain is that giving birth is not for the lighthearted. It is extremely difficult. And if a person's ability to consent to a procedure under some form of stress is vitiated, I would tend to suggest that if that person is in the stages of labor and delivery, um, that that standard is unequivocally surpassed. but I suppose we'll see as things progress. Well, when you think about, you know, labor and delivery, you're in a vulnerable state. It's not like you could go run away from an enemy, for example. You're full of hormones. I mean, probably the maximum level of hormones. Often there's a lot of pain associated. You're, 
you're not in the kind of mind where you could make regular everyday decisions, just like you wouldn't expect someone who is undergoing an operation to make decisions about what should or should not be in a contract, for example. Precisely, precisely. And I think that, um, you know, when we talk about the pain of childbirth, it's, it's important to recognize that you know, in the hours leading up to, and for some women in the days leading up to, Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's no rest. There's, you know, so, so, you know, sleep deprivation comes into, comes into the picture. There's discomfort. I mean, I think that starts at week, from my experience at week 32. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's, it, it becomes extremely uncomfortable. Your sleep is impacted. It's not for any reason, um, it's not for no reason, I should mm-hmm. say, that um, from my understanding and from the teachings that have been shared with me, that a woman who is giving life ought to be treated with utmost respect, no ill words spoken around mm-hmm. her, um, no screaming, and that one ought to get her whatever she needs. And that's to make the process as easy as possible, considering the extreme situation that she finds herself in, both physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. And notwithstanding any of that, notwithstanding all of that pain, all of, as we know, the possible tearing, the cutting, mm-hmm. the, the healing, the, you know, the, it's, it's, it's an ordeal. Um, mm-hmm. We're willing to do it over and over again because the result is worth it. And um, it's worth every moment of it. In fact, I think after mm-hmm. I had my last one, I said, oh, I can do this again. Um, because that's how important it is to us. Because that's um, that's what it does for us. And and I think that having that taken away without your consent, um, or I have I have come to learn and and know through the women that I represent that it is beyond devastating. That it has um, extreme impacts on a woman's self concept. Um, on uh, of herself as a mother as a woman um as an indigenous woman uh and and those those impacts are they they range they really do range uh in some instances i'm sad to say that the consequences have been so great that the women are no longer with us no and and uh you know their their parents are carrying on um the fight of, of their legacy for them. And so these That's, realities being what they are, uh, it's important that we protect that space. Yeah, because ultimately a, a forced or coerced sterilization is, is about, you know, preventing that life-giving ability within, you know, inside of an, an Indigenous woman. But it's not just that surgical procedure and that specific reality the impact like you were talking about is huge it can have a significant impact on one's mental health one's physical health uh, even their lifespan I mean we we know um some people um haven't survived and then that has an impact on the family the other children that may still be there um you know the whole community and and one of the things that I think, sh- you know, really shocked me most about all of this issue around forced and coerced sterilization is that, you know, when you're when you're growing up, when you learn about these things, if you learn about them at all, because this hasn't always been in the public sphere, it's always historicized. Like a long time ago, there was something called forced and coerced sterilization, and now it's a thing of the past, and no one would ever think that in today's day and age that any of this would happen, but it is in fact still happening. And my question really is who's involved here? Because you know, in the media or, you know, even in social media or in, in a layperson's conversation, when we talk about native issues or so-called native problems, everyone says, well, why isn't the federal government or the provincial government doing something here? But this is more than just governments. This is, like who's involved here? It's 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 also doctors and nurses and social workers, isn't it? 
Yes, I think that it's systemic, like most issues. And so I think that our, our pointing to systemic issues kind of takes the pressure valve off of any individual culpability. But I don't think that that should be so. Mm. And, and the reason I don't think that should be so is because these systems are operated by people. People mm -hmm. who make decisions to incentivize or disincentivize, discipline or not discipline, investigate or not investigate, um, particular fact patterns, reports, etc. And what we've noted um, in the past couple of years in terms of the historicization of, of this particular issue is that there's nothing historic about it. And the reason there's nothing historic about it is because nothing has been done to that system by people to prevent this from happening. And so we represent women in Saskatchewan who, who were sterilized against their will in December of 2018. We represent a proposed representative plaintiff in Manitoba who was sterilized in June 2018. The young woman in Saskatchewan is 30 years old. Wow. And so when we look at the kind of impacts they're living with today, I have no words to describe what they are. They are devastated. They're absolutely devastated. And one of the greater problems, which you touched upon, is, is that our communities don't always know mm -hmm. um, that they have the right to say no. And I'll be honest with you, some of the women we represent have said no, and it made not a lick of difference. And so as far as who is involved, um, we say that a lot of the system is involved. Everyone plays a role. I'm not saying that they're sitting in a room and they're conspiring. Uh, we're not suggesting that for a moment. But what we are suggesting is that systems were operationalized in a particular way some time ago to achieve particular goals. And where there has not been any systemic reform, and as we both know, there hasn't been, then why would we be surprised that the results would be the exact same, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you raised a really good point around this whole idea about conspiracy. You know, the response when raising these issues, you know, people would say, oh, well, it's not like they're all sitting around conspiring. Maybe not. Maybe they're not having a meeting with all of these people and conspiring. How are we going to do forced sterilizations proper like that? But they are allowing their racist and sexist views to make individual and joint decisions that they know or ought to know is wrong. I mean, if if an Indigenous woman says, no, I don't want to be sterilized, and a doctor goes ahead anyway, that just, you know, ba on basic common morals seems very wrong to me. Mm -hmm. Well, and and I I couldn't agree with you more, and frankly, it constitutes a battery of a sexual nature, and this is what we say in our pleadings that it is. And I don't think that it can be viewed any differently. Um our, our clients are extremely strong proponents of the uh, cr the specific criminalization of force and coerced mm -hmm. sterilization. And the United Nations Committee Against Torture agrees that the gaps in Canada's criminal code ought to be filled with respect to that. Not to throw a bunch of doctors in jail, like some would suggest. I think most doctors are excellent people. This is not what this case is about. What this case is about is those doctors and those people who are not. Mm-hmm. And further to that, um, if we examine the criminal code as it exists now, we see that aggravated assault is a specific crime. We also see that the, uh, that uh, female genital mutilation is also a crime. We also see that prior to the amendments made further the Morgan Tyler decision, abortion was a crime a therapeutic abortion, I should say. Um, yet we see no specific provision on forced or coerced mm -hmm. sterilization, which constitutes all of those things, perhaps, yeah. in some ways. Um, yeah. Or it imports all of those areas of reproductive rights, I should suggest. Um, we, it seems that the legislature would care enough to render female genital mutilation in Canada illegal. And I'm not saying that I disagree with that. I think that that is, is on point. 
Um, but I also think that forced and coerced sterilization constitutes female genital mutilation in that its impacts are forever. So wasn't there an attempt to criminalize forced and coerced sterilizations? Mm-hmm. And um, what was the result? There was no interest uh, from the attorney general at the time. Uh, instead, there was a suggestion that such actions or such acts are covered by existing <laughs> provisions of the criminal code. To our knowledge, those provisions have never resulted in any charges or convictions. Which sounds eerily like this whole crisis of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, where, you know, the the government response is always, well, there's enough laws to cover these things. I mean, there's a, a law against murder. There's a law against assault. There's a law against kidnapping. But the problem is when the laws don't actually, they're not extended to protect Indigenous women and girls. And I'm raising this because, as you know, the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls found Canada guilty of historic and ongoing acts of genocide. And they included the issue of forced and coerced sterilization as an example. So this is yeah. this really this is more than what I would consider a mere assault. This really, like the UN says, goes to the heart of torture. It's targeted in a very sex-based manner and has devastating consequences. It does. And it, it has, we believe, it, it disproportionately impacts Indigenous women and mm -hmm. perhaps men historically. We're not sure. We don't have the data. And that's a part of the problem is that requests for data are met with stone walls. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the Organization of American States has been unequivocal in its requests or its direction to Canada that it provide aggregated and disaggregated mm -hmm. data with respect to these types of issues. Um, but of course, no such information is forthcoming, and the state is the only one in a publicly funded and administered healthcare system to have that information. And so, what are we stuck with? We're stuck with uh, examining the consequences on the ground, mm -hmm. um, and and what we're able to see, and what we're able to piece together historically, as Karen, Dr. Karen Stote has done, which is extremely helpful um, and insightful work. What we see today is the exact same things we saw some time ago. And I think one of the challenges is that when people are not aware of what their rights are, when they are made aware of their rights, they will either identify or not identify with an experience. And if they do identify with that experience, no one would know unless they voice it at that time. And not all women choose to. It takes a long time for our clients to pick up the phone and give us a call. And as it should, um, this is no small thing to come to terms with. Um, where are the supports for these women? Mm -hmm. Where are, um, you know, where's, where's, uh, where's the trauma counseling? Where's the reprieve? And, and for what would they pick up the phone? and put their experience onto their sleeve if there isn't someone out there fighting for them and they're confident that something may come from it for themselves and for their family and for their daughters and granddaughters and future generations, right? Mm -hmm. So there has to be that confidence that, gee, if I put myself out there, something might just change because they'll see, they'll help me, right? They'll help us. And, and I understand the reticence or the... Um, the, uh, the hesitation when it comes to that, because that's not been, uh, that's not been the experience for, for Indigenous women, um, that something comes from it, something mm -hmm. meaningful. And so we hope to change, we hope to change that with this, because the impacts on families, if we consider, if, you, if anyone knows any woman um, who has struggled with fertility, uh, because of natural causes or unnatural causes, it can be exceedingly devastating on that woman, on her marriage, or on her, her couple, on her union, on her mm -hmm. family, on her extended family, on her community. Mm -hmm. Women feel a lot of pressure to reproduce. And, you know, we can have a long discussion about whether or not that's good or bad. The fact is, is that it doesn't matter if a woman wants to and is able to on her own. 
then it's her choice. It's her yeah. choice. And although there may be some medical conditions that make it more dangerous or that may even threaten her life, then it is still her choice to take that risk or not. I'm not suggesting that she should. That is a discussion mm -hmm. to be had with your doctor. But that's the point, is that it's a discussion to be had while she's not in the most extreme pain of her mm -hmm. life and when she has some time to think about it. And that's all we're suggesting, is that the timing of these discussions appear to be exceedingly opportunistic when they mm -hmm. occur in the throes of labor and pointed towards a particular result. I hope I'm proven wrong, but I don't think that will be the case. So, I mean, what do you see as the main barriers to ending? So just set aside the litigation for a minute and think about like, what are the main barriers to ending this ongoing practice of forced and coerced sterilization? I mean, you already identified one, you talked about how difficult it is to get the data from either professional associations, presumably, or governments, A, because it's not collected, or B, because it's not shared. Um, but what else do you see? I mean, they, they refuse to criminalize it. The debt is hard to get. Um, it, do, you, do you see anything in terms of like public support or any other barriers? Um, I, think, I think it's what we already know. And mm -hmm. it's, it's attitudes and where those reside in policy and legislation. And what's, what is the subject of incentivization which, within those systems and what is, what is disincentivized? And so if there was any kind of consequence to doing something to a person's body without their consent and that, that those consequences would be serious and ripple through, mm -hmm. just as serious as the impact um, of a woman having to go through this experience without her consent, then I think that um, there would be some deterrence. I think that criminalization would help in that regard. Um, really, I think that what we have to have a deep dive into is a meaningful implementation of the right to equality. And I think that you name you 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 nailed it quite early a little bit earlier when you said, you know, these laws are okay, but for whatever reason they don't apply because there's suite of law that applies mm -hmm. to population A. And then there's suite of law that applies to population B. And we're in population B. And mm. I know that that is not a popular perspective to have. And we could, there's, a, there's likelihood that everyone would, would want to debate that. But the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is, is that the numbers on the ground, the lived experience on the ground is evidence and a testament to that rule. Otherwise, we would not be seeing what we see and women would not be so afraid and concerned to come forward with the assertion of rights with respect to their own bodily autonomy that women not of their racial or cultural persuasion would not hesitate to assert. Yeah, I, and I mean, I think that's key. In, in the gravest things that have happened to Indigenous women and sometimes girls, because historically it was actually girls that were also forcibly sterilized, even without their knowledge sometimes. Um, yeah. It's a scenario where women who do come forward sometimes pay a price by, you know, the officials that they respond to. Um, they could be penalized. If you come forward and say that there's any issues, you could have social workers involved. Um, but then there's also the vilification of the people who do come forward. Like, and you can just look to any of the thousands of the, you know, Indigenous women who have been part of, you know, these murdered and missing Indigenous women um, cases and all of the family members where police officers didn't even open a file or dismiss them as, well, they're not really missing, they're just out partying. Or And, and you can only imagine the kinds of things they would say about these women who have been forcibly sterilized or coercively sterilized about their motherhood or ability to care for children or all of these racially conceived notions about who's fit and who's not. And it amazes me that anyone comes forward. So I look at these women like, they're all individual heroes for mm -hmm. taking all of those societal risks to say, I don't want this to happen to my kids. I don't want it to happen to my sister. I don't want it to happen to other people. And somehow, you know, just warrior through and say, we're going to hold people accountable, both individuals and systems. 
Agreed. And, and I think that um, you're, you're 100% right. I stand in awe at the courage of these women mm-hmm. and at their resilience. And I know these are words that we use often, but it's mm-hmm. really hard to find the right word because the amount of strength and courage they have, I, I, I really have chills just thinking about it. And they, they are intent on achieving justice first and foremost in an extremely altruistic way for mm-hmm. future generations, for their sisters, for their safety, and secondly, for themselves. They will often say when we are doing our work, they will ask other people they've disclosed their story to, are you okay? Oh. This is the amount of kindness and compassion that these women who have been horribly violated still have. And so they are, they are heroes. Not only are they heroes, but their, their strength will be the reason that this will stop. And it mm-hmm. will stop. And they won't stop. And we won't stop until it does. Because we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. We have we, we have communities that we're accountable to, and we have little girls that we're accountable to. And those are the people that we have to answer to. Um, well, yeah. In our efforts. Exactly. And I think that I mean it's always it's always them that come forward and and challenge these things like murder to missing indigenous women and girls. We wouldn't even be talking about that were it not for the survivors and the families coming forward and saying this has to stop. And the one thing you mentioned, you know, Dr. Karen Stoat, who who wrote that book about um, the sterilization of Aboriginal women. And I reviewed her book on my YouTube uh, Reconciliation Book Club. And the thing that struck me the most was that this is actually a pattern. So you think about, you know, the, the sterilization procedure, but it it wasn't just that. They were also being forced and coerced into abortions and forced and coerced and manipulated into forms of birth control that ultimately led to their sterilization. And it was tied to the child welfare system. So there's like this big pattern of targeting Indigenous women and, and uh, at least in the past, uh, little girls for controlling our ability to give life. Absolutely. And I think that the attacks on the land are no different. Mm-hmm. Um, although they are systemic. And I don't think, I mean, I, I may, some may disagree. I don't think, that, like you said, anyone is sitting there in leadership saying, we're just, uh, this is our intention. But that was the intention from the yes. outset. And yep. we have a lot of parliamentary um, hands-earned evidence to that effect. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that that intent has not been changed Yes. current policy and legislation. What we saw from the apology arising from the residential school settlement agreement was a statement by the then prime minister saying very unequivocally, the attitudes that inspired uh, residential schools have no place to, re- to prevail in Canada ever again. Well, where was the exercise to undo yeah. the state's instruments from those attitudes? Where exactly. Where was it? And I'm uh, I'm a painter trying to find a quote from a book written by Maureen Lux called Separate Beds. Uh, it's an excellent book. I'm not intending to plug any kind of publication. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Way, <laughs> but it really does explain uh, health care in Canada and how things um, have come to be the way that they are. Interestingly enough, universal healthcare was born in Saskatchewan. And I recall reading um, a quote uh, from, I believe it was the mid sixties or early seventies from the superintendent of something or other Mm -hmm. uh, at a six nations hospital close to Toronto. Um, And the statement was, Although we do not have weapons trained on them, we although we do not have guns trained on them, pardon me, we must or should use the weapons at our disposal. Now I'm paraphrasing, but that's about mm-hmm. what it said. And this was one of the superintendents of health at Six Nations in charge of taking care of sick mm-hmm. Indians. Mm-hmm. And so why are they having a conversation about using weapons against those in their care who they have a duty to, yeah. to, to nurture to wellness 
who what what is this what is this tension that we see here isn't that the exact opposite of do no harm when you're literally talking about weapons at our disposal yes and Which, this was during the tuberculosis and so yeah. and so you have to wonder in indian hospitals for example it's my understanding that some tuberculosis wards were co-located or in too close of a proximity to labor wards yeah and so um you know in terms of, of funding um i'm not sure what mm -hmm. federal funds were used for in more rural areas and the provincial systems um to to you know to build health facilities for indigenous people or were they used otherwise i'm not mm -hmm. saying i am not suggesting for a moment that i have an answer to that question mm -hmm. but i think that it's a valid question um and if the answer is not as i think it is then um, I will apologize wholeheartedly, uh, but. <laughs> but we have to go with the evidence that is before us and the evidence is just overwhelming and we don't even know everything we don't even know yet. I mean, exactly. it's only coming out about Indian hospitals and not just what I would consider you know, gross malpractice at a minimum, but but the, all the sexual abuse, um, all the abuse of children, um, the separation of families, the forced adoptions from hospitals outwards. I mean, there's there's so much tied into all of this that, you know, uh, and me personally, I I don't give anybody a free ride. Anyone who is a participant in this is it should be held personally accountable individually accountable as well as holding the system accountable because i think when we talk about systems it detaches it from the humans who are operating these systems and the okay. indian act gets a bad rap for example you know canadians will point to the india well the indian act's the problem well there's nothing in the indian act that says doctors go and forcibly <laughs> sterilize native women those are exactly. people making these decisions based on racist ideas sexist ideas and I agree with the National Inquiry into Murder and Missing Indigenous Women that there is enough historical evidence, even the government's own documents, to show both an intention and a manifest pattern of trying to destroy Indigenous women and girls physically, biologically, culturally, um, you know, socially, in every way. So I do think that there has been an intention. It just gets covered up in different ways as for your own good. Or this is, you know, about a lack of fitness to parent or, you know, it's it's characterized in a different way, but it is still that intentional breaking up of families or not even being able to have a family. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember that some women were prevented from that altogether because mm -hmm. of this happening to them earlier on in the uh in the child and welfare system, which is something that we've heard as well. I think that I think that um I think that you're right and i think that continuum of genocidal mm -hmm. practices um, has situated on it um, a series of seeds that turn into cauliflowers as we pass by them mm -hmm. and when we look behind us we say oh my goodness you know we saw the seed but now we see the cauliflower mm -hmm. uh, but we're still stuck in one of them mm -hmm. and we continue to try to move forward and, and this is the this is the difficulty is is in trying to manage chaos and crisis and the impacts um, of these practices, while at the same time trying to obliterate them or change them, it is extremely mm -hmm. difficult um, to do that. And as as you will probably very well understand, these have impacts. These types of um, matters have impacts personally on advocates as well. Yeah, uh, because it's extremely difficult if if you have any degree of, of empathy as a human being um to hear these these stories uh over and over and to identify those patterns the only thing harder is to be going through it right and i think that when we point to these systemic matters and there's kind of just a oh well it's systemic what can we do about it mm -hmm. there seems to be this 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 um this point where people get stuck well it's mm -hmm. systemic what do yeah. we do what do yeah. we do well we'll pick this little piece of something and we'll run with it um, because it's politically convenient and it'll make a bunch of people happy even if mm -hmm. we do it or not um 
and you know we'll we'll figure out the system issue later because it's just it's just too hard you know it's it's just yeah. too difficult yeah and and we only have from nine o'clock in the morning till five in the afternoon after all uh to, to, to try to do that. And this is how I see that system responding and the mm-hmm. people within the system, not to diminish the very well-meaning people that are in there. And I know that some of our people are in there mm-hmm. pushing and trying to do the best that they can. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but when you have a majority of people who treat um, very real human suffering as an issue, they deal with nine to five from time to time yeah. when you need to, um, that's the difference between those who have a stake in it and those who don't. And that um, that distinction um, becomes really important when we start to focus on on progress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some will be more driven than others, and and that's you know that's okay. But I think we've moved beyond this. When you have the United Nations Committee Against Torture pointing yeah. your finger and saying, "Hey, this is torture. Do yeah. something about this," and you have a government responding. You know, these are heinous human rights violations and mm-hmm. you have health regions apologizing and you have everyone's arms in the air going, well, it's systemic. Yeah. Yeah. Who's gonna, you know, the, the, the inaction resulted in the foreseeability of my client's sterilization in December. And I've made no bones about that. I've been mm-hmm. extremely public about it because it's true. Had something have been done to disincentivize, to deter to prevent, most importantly, this practice from happening, there's a very good chance that that young woman who was sterilized in December after the United Nations Committee Against Torture came out and said, this is torture, do something, Canada, she may not have gone through what she did. Exactly. But- and I, th- Yeah. I, and I think that's what makes you know, system accountability and change important, but individual accountability and weeding out any of those doctors who engage in these practices, any of those nurses who facilitate with social workers in those practices. So it may not be everybody, but for all of those who have participated, they need to be held accountable and no longer practicing. And that's that's markedly different from uh, say criminal charges and there may be some women who also want to pursue criminal charges but what I'm saying is we need to start hauling these people out of these systems if 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 people believe the system is too we unwieldy to change right away well then let's start dealing with the culprits and getting them out of that system while we work on the bigger system part Agreed. And there has to be, I think, again, it comes down to humanization, attitude mm-hmm. and effort and mm-hmm. they have to they have to care you know, there has to be some form of, of caring. Um, it has to go beyond, oh, gee, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to be catapulted into action as though this is happening yeah. to their very own families. So, um, Alyssa, uh, like moving forward, w- what's the solution? So if you became the, you know, minister of something or other and y- it was completely within your power, what are some of the changes that you would make right away that you think would be most effective? Well, that's no small question. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think um, if we're talking about this issue, I, I think that the United Nations has laid it out. And I think that there mm-hmm. have to be meaningful measures taken with respect to prevention, punishment and reparation. Yeah. And so the first thing I would do is uh, put together an approach based on those fundamental tenets. Right. And let's make no mistake, they're not just simple recommendations. These come from a treaty, from a covenant mm-hmm. that Canada is bound to follow against torture. Mm-hmm. And so prevention can be achieved through a series of ways. I would institute a study to examine what mm-hmm. what way is most effective yeah. in its results. And so is criminalization a part of that? I suspect so. Yep. Um, some financial disincentivization, um, certainly some oversight. Mm, uh, yes. One of the things that we found is popular um, is a suggestion that, you know, midwives in communities need to receive more funding so that women can birth at home um, and that Indigenous women birthing within hospitals uh, need to be accompanied by support mm-hmm. and that there have to be cultural competency training. Now, this again, 
places the burden on the shoulders of those who have been victimized. So you arrange your house so that it's not as easy for the system to be racist with you, is how I do this. Instead of anti-racism training, targeting the actual attitudes and the treatment... Um, we're going to say we need to protect those that are vulnerable to it. And although I agree with that as an interim measure, it certainly shouldn't be a goal. Um, also, yeah. this strange suggestion that Indigenous women, for some reason, would just rather have home births and not birth in a hospital. Uh, know, I'm sorry, but I want an epidural. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I don't want to walk out not being able to have any other children unless I have wholeheartedly agreed to that. And so... I don't think that that's too much to ask because every other woman gets that. Yes. Right. Exactly. And so, yeah. And so this cultural training component, I think brings within it some kind of um, enigmatic, uh, you know, this is what they need kind of approach, this misconception of what our cultures are, of who we are. And, and um, you know, my, my initial response to that was very tongue in cheek. And I said, there's no amount of smudging. Yeah, that's going to to teach someone to not treat someone badly, and frankly, um, I don't think they deserve to learn anything about it yet. Oh my um, gosh! Ex- exactly, I yeah. have literally said that a thousand times about when police commit sexualized violence against Indigenous women and girls. That it, no amount of smudging or cultural awareness training is going to get at the problem. The problem is sexually violent police officers that need to be Mm -hmm. booted from the force because they have Mm -hmm. a big problem. It's not about the culture. It's not because we're culturally different. No, and it's it's a perpetuation of the same attitudes. And that's why if we Mm -hmm. go back and we look at that apology and we talk about the attitudes that inspired the residential school system, it's that exercise that we have to undertake and strip that system down, rebuild it. Is it going to be labor intensive? Probably, but not as labor intensive and emotionally intensive as it is to live through the impacts of not doing it and Mm -hmm. to even try to fix it piecemeal. Um, That systemic overhaul is desperately needed. Mm -hmm. And accountability is something that our clients demand. um, And that accountability will need to come from the system as well. Um, as far as healthcare is concerned, I mean, in terms of reparations, I think that these women um, deserve to be compensated the way any other woman would be Mm -hmm. um, if this critical thing was taken away from them without their consent. Uh, Now the impacts will be different. I understand that. How do you quantify the ability to give life? That's a tough one. Yeah. Um, But I think that it's something that you know, we have to turn our minds to. Um, And with respect to punishment, uh, it's like you said, I think that these individuals need to be held to account. Mm -hmm. Um, And if that's done criminally, uh, all the better as far as my clients are concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's done in other ways, um, you know, some accountability is better than none. And I think, again, that, you know, the United Nations has provided the framework and there's no reason why we can't um, develop something around that. Now, will its operationalization be a more complicated? Well, of course it will. Mm-hmm. But does it matter enough? Of course it does. Yes. Of course it does. And so if it means that not another 30-year-old or 28-year-old comes to me or calls me and says, this just happened to me, then it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Um, and I, I And I suggest if anyone thinks that it may not be that they walk a day in, in that young woman's yeah. moccasin and see how she's feeling and what this has done to her life. And uh, tell me if they still feel the same way afterwards. We all know people who have struggled with f- fertility and the lengths that they yeah. will go to and yeah. the amount of money they will pay to be able to conceive a child. This is not even within the realm of possibility for our clients. It's not even you yeah. know, in vitro fertilization. How? How would they do that? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I just, it's so, it's just such a massive, massive trauma. And I, and I, I, I like your advice. I think it's powerful advice that people really need to think about putting themselves in their shoes. Um, because I guess my last question to kind of round out our hour is, is there anything that Canadians can do to help? And I mean, help in terms of 
advocating on this issue in general or specifically with the litigation or anything? Do you have any suggestions for Canadians? Well, I, I would suggest that people first and foremost stay informed, stay mm -hmm. informed of what's happening around you and on this issue in particular. And imagine being in that situation and how mm -hmm. difficult it would be before one proposes any particular solutions. Right. Um, in terms of that, we will be in Quito, Ecuador before the uh, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights um, at a forum presenting alongside Maria Isabel, who is very strong advocate for Indigenous women who experience forced sterilization under the Fujimori regime in Peru. And we will be talking about the issue of forced and coerced sterilization at the regional level or the continental level. Mm -hmm. um, I have had conversations with women in the United States uh, very recently um, and with women in, in other countries that have uh, similar issues. Uh, and so as far as what people can do in Canada, uh, I would say stay informed and mm -hmm. take action. Take action in whichever way uh, you think is appropriate mm -hmm. uh, to, to lend a hand. Um, we are planning uh, a march and a rally, uh, or I would say a march rather, uh, to happen uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, that planning is underway and it's my hope that um, you know, people will lend their support to that effort wherever mm -hmm. they may be um, for the women um, and for the for the little spirits who weren't able to join us because of other people's decisions. Well, that's thank you for that advice, because I know lots of times after my podcasts or YouTube videos, people say this is outrageous. I never learned about this in school or I wasn't informed about it now that I know um, what other resources are there and how, what can I do to help? And just knowing that, you know, self-education is such a core part of it and then taking action in a multitude of ways, like everybody can contribute in a different way. Some people can put pressure on their MPs. Some people can, yes. you know, do research and give it to a Senator. Some people can participate in a March. Some people can donate financially to various causes that support, um, things like this but I think it's important that Canadians don't just get educated but they get educated for the purpose of action and Agreed. I really like that 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 was your recommendation and Alyssa I I can't thank you enough for coming on this show I know we work together on a whole bunch of other issues and I just came back from the Inter-American Commission and we were talking about um, forced and coerced sterilization and what Canada needs to do to 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 stop the, you know, to stop this genocide and it's, it's ongoing work and I know it's heavy work. And so I appreciate everything that you've ever done and what you continue to do both on a professional level, but just on a basic human level, all of the extra hours and time and probably heartache that goes into uh, making sure that people and systems are held accountable for what is effectively genocide. And, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing all of your knowledge with all my listeners today. And I, and I hope you come back. Oh, thanks so much. And thanks for inviting me. And uh, thanks to you as well for all of your incredibly hard work and for staying on top of the multitude of issues. Uh, I really don't know how you do it, but I'm grateful to you that, uh, that you do. And we should all be very grateful to you that you do. Well, thanks, Alyssa. Thank goodness there's a whole bunch of us in this <laughs> in this cause so that we're all supporting one another. And thanks to all of you, my listeners, for tuning into my show. I really hope you learned a lot listening to Alyssa. She knows a lot about this. And what I'll do is I'll post a link to her uh, law firm's website, but also a few media articles that are really good uh, where she talks a lot about what's happening in this area. And if you like this episode, part of what you can do to help is uh, share it, share it with your family members, share it with doctors, share it with, you know, everyone you can think of, all your social justice activists. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast, uh, like and comment on the each episode like what else do you want to know what else can we do to help you take action on these issues i'm currently hosted on soundcloud but i'm also available on itunes google play stitcher and spotify and you can follow me on instagram as pam palmeter or uh, youtube all of the social media outlets where we try 
to inform people and educate as best as possible for the purposes of taking action together. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. We'll